0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: In this episode, we're going to be talking about undercover actors in the shadow self. Now, we're following up our pro wrestling episode, the, the Keeping Kayfay, which published just prior to this one. Uh, and in that episode, we talk a lot about, this, uh, about the idea of layering reality. With these, with fiction, particularly as it involves uh, institutions and sports and uh, and product performance products that are uh, given to uh, to an audience, layering it with fiction to improve upon it and change it. And we touched a little bit about what happens when you put these layers of fiction upon yourself. We talked to uh, pro wrestler Colt Cabana, uh, quizzed him a little bit about uh, what it's like when he has to play a villain in the ring, uh, and then when he, he leaves the ring, uh, in a, how he's able to shut that off. But how he still feels like there is a certain amount of him that is uh, that escapes into this villainous character. And likewise, there's, a, there's a, an aspect of him in the really goody, well, not really goody two-shoes, but the good guy version of himself that he also portrays. So in this episode, we're going to uh, continue this sort of exploration, but we're, we're going to be looking beyond the world of pro wrestlers, and looking into the world of actors, uh, method acting, for instance. We're going to look at undercover cops, uh, and we're also going to look at our online selves a little bit.
0: And before we do so, just wanted to... Um Let you know uh, a little bit about kayfabing in case you didn't hear the other episode. Mm -hmm. Kayfabe is a term that's an old carny term that is uh, used to indicate that someone should keep being fake. In other words, if you are wrestling um, and you're... It's a fake wrestling match. You want to make sure you don't break out of character. So you want to kayfabe, right? And uh, we talked in that other episode about how kayfabing really pervades the fabric of our culture. And uh, this is something that has come up, I believe, with Colt Cabana. Um, it has come up in uh, Eric Weinstein's article about kayfabing uh, that... You can find it everywhere. You can find it in reality shows mm-hmm. because a lot of these reality shows, as we know, are scripted. And yet the audience doesn't seem to care, much like in pro wrestling, right? They don't care that there is kayfabing going on. It's about the spectacle.
1: Yeah. and uh, But then it can also end up sort of warping the individual or seeming to because uh, we asked Cole about this. And he said, that yeah, there are times where a, a, a particular wrestler lets their gimmick, lets their, their fictional self um, – Kind of alter their their real self. Like they'll they'll buy into the gimmick too much. They'll believe the hype about the character they portray, and on some level, it becomes confused with who they are.
0: Yeah, that's right. Eric Weinstein in his essay alluded to that and said that sometimes they believe these confabulations of their storylines so much so, like, for instance, some sort of infidelity or adultery, that Mm -hmm. they will actually then go on to commit adultery, some of these pro wrestlers and some of these various storylines that they've had to play out. So we start thinking about that. And of course, we look at ourselves and and start to wonder, okay, what about our own minds and our own consciousness and sense of self? Because when we get up in the morning, we basically have to put on our public selves right when we go out the door and what is this story that we're telling ourselves what is this script that we're we're following for ourselves
1: yeah and ultimately who is that guy who is that girl that you are in these various environments like who's that who's that person that you are on the subway train versus that person that you are in the office versus that person that you are uh you know say tucked into bed with your significant other or you know talking to the cat in the middle of the night. I don't know. It's like a, every different in, environment, uh, every different interaction with the external world, it tends to summon a different you.
0: Yeah. And, and although we tend to think that we've got this continuity director in our head making sure that we're always the same person we we purport ourselves to be, there are, are opportunities for us to break from the script. Right. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit today. and. When you start thinking about scripts, of course you have to look at actors.
1: Yes. Now, yeah, when you start thinking about actors, and certainly that comes up, you know, we're talking about, like, pro wrestlers who are you know, in an angle where they have to pretend they're having an affair and then they end up having the affair. Uh, I mean, you can think of various examples of, of actors and, and uh, that, that end up meeting on a set where they're playing uh, significant others and then they end up uh, being significant others to a certain extent, you know, and, and certainly I even remember I was in a community play, adaptation of uh, 1776, I was Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I ended up dating uh, Mrs. Jefferson after the play.
0: Uh, ah, yeah. so you feel like the, the groundwork was put there and, and that it was just like that whole uh, debate about whether or not you have any free will, it was like the suggestion was there and you followed it?
1: Maybe. I don't know. It, it's it's possible. But, uh, but, but certainly... Um, you see this at times. You see people that, that, and you hear stories about actors really getting into their roles, uh, particularly as far as method acting is concerned. So method acting uh, generally combines uh, the the you know the actor's uh, consideration of the character's psychological motives and personal identification. Like they're, they're getting their, trying to get their mind inside that of the character they're portraying. Like they're, they're asking themselves, who is this person? And then what do I need to do to connect with them? Like mm-hmm. how can I connect my own feelings with the feelings of this character, and and therefore create a more um, believable presentation on the screen? This versus more, tra- you know, a more traditional like non-method approach, where one just simply gets up there and and you know recites the lines and does so in a way that uh, that mimics um, legitimate deep felt emotion. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's of course there are stories, plenty of stories about actors who supposedly like don't break character, uh, like th- for like an entire week of fi- filming, even though they're only filming like during the day, like they're 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 staying in character outside of the picture, um, and uh, and th- and those stories are like you, you people get a little um, antsy about that, mm-hmm. particularly people who who really follow uh, the method uh and they'll say well that's not really what method acting is all about that's not what was actually or, you know originally part of the method as it was conceived right and, and then you also have some some stories that just simply didn't happen like one of the famous ones is is supposedly and again this is this never happened but uh Solaris Olivia and Dustin Hoffman um we're on the set of Marathon Man, and and Dustin Hoffman shows up just looking like hell, just dirty and just just strung out looking because his character is supposed to be. And he explain and he explains that in pre- preparation for the scene, he stayed up all night and he didn't bathe and all this. And Olivier supposedly responded by saying, "My good sir, why don't you just try acting? Ha ha ha!" And it's supposed to, you know it's right. supposed to be a good laugh at the method actor's expense, saying, "Well, why don't you just pretend to be the thing that you are instead of trying to embody it?" But, um.
0: What I like about that is it's kayfabing the kayfabe.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, because here's this fake story about this, about faking reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and I, I think that's really interesting. Uh, what I like about uh, actors is I think they're very interesting creatures because they are dealing with this duality of nature, yeah. right? And they are having to inhabit this space and to try to do so in a way that really fools us, right? Um, actor Tandy Newton has a great TED.com talk and she talks about what it's like to be an actor and what it's like to inhabit another character. And uh, she has some Interesting thoughts on it. I just wanted to share some quotes with you. She talks about this idea that she always felt separate from other people. She always felt like the other, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly because she was someone of color in England growing up and right away, and a female, and so here she is already the other. So she talked about this idea of oneness and separateness. She said, our little portion of oneness is given a name, is told all kinds of things about itself, and these details, opinions, and ideas become facts, which go towards building ourselves, our identity. So she's talking about this, idea of self and and this little bit of self we can grab in the world and define ourselves by. And she says, and that self becomes the vehicle for navigating our social world. But the self is a projection based on other people's projections. Is it who we really are or who we really want to be or should be? So she says that this whole interaction with self and identity was really difficult for her growing up. So she said that when she found acting, it was revelatory. She said, I can hardly find the words to describe the peace I felt when I was acting. My dysfunctional self could actually plug into another self, not my own, and it felt so good. Because she says that while she had a degree from Cambridge, a thriving career, she herself was a bit of a, a car wreck. Uh, because she was so invested in this idea of self, and she hadn't quite yet figured out that it is just a projection, it's an illusion. And she says that the, this, this idea of self is something that we value above all else, and we've created an entire value system and a physical reality to support the worth of self.
1: Yeah, it uh, reminds me of a study that uh, we ran across, and this is from uh, Ellie A. Connage from the University of Amsterdam. She was curious how much... Uh, how much actors are aware, uh, of their performance when they perform it and how, and to what extent they're letting a character take over. Because we've, we you've heard, we've heard that before. We heard a little bit of that from Colt Cabana, mm-hmm. uh, about, you know, you're, you're playing this character and you just, you, your, your juices get flowing and you just, you embody it. You, the, the character kind of possesses you, right? So, um, so, this study was interested in that. So she uh, asked Dutch actors to rate their own emotions and the emotions of the characters they were playing across uh, a range of different states from disgust to anxiety, you know, tenderness, pleasure, fear, uh, etc. And uh, she found that positive emotions were often felt by the actors as they played those characters' emotions, but the more, more negative the emotion that they were supposed to portray, the less likely it was that the actor would, would report actually feeling that emotion. So, huh. so, so in this study they found that actors were better able to connect and, and be taken over by those positive feelings.
0: Huh, okay, so they were able then to manage that system of not being influenced right. so much by, by their emotions or the emotions of the character. Um, see, this is why I think it's such an interesting mind game, this acting, because mm-hmm. you do, you get into some very weird territory about who you are and what reality is
1: yeah and we've discussed before too like we're talking about chest opening exercises which we talked about laughter and, and smiling and laughter yoga mm-hmm. and all this and it you know comes down to that kind of that fake it till you make it kind mm-hmm. of vibe the, the idea that just on a physical level if we you know we smile and it makes us um, it makes us begin to feel the emotions that would have made the smile when we put the uh, effect out there it generates the cause even if there was no cause
0: and so, what Tandy Newton is saying is that when, when you think about the self,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you think, "Oh, okay, well, I'm happy today," and and, you, and if you are so malleable that you allow all these different forces to act upon you, then what you're doing is you're um, confusing self for actual living. Because what she says is that it's uh, the self is not an actual living thing. It's projection which our clever brains create in order to cheat ourselves from the reality of death. So she's saying that it's our ability to divorce ourselves from the concept of self and then ground ourselves in others and outside experiences that really liberates us and allows us to live fully. So I, I liked... What she had to say about this from an actor's perspective, because um, there there is a ton of duality going on here. So, what do you mistake for the real thing, and what is the real thing? I think is what we're trying to get at here, um, and underscore.
1: You get into questions of what is there a real thing? Is there is there anything at the heart of this, or is it just a bunch of masks encircling the the formless? Um, and then and then to what extent are some, is some if there is a true you? then to what extent is the 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 fake you almost as powerful there was a, there was a really great uh, episode I think a shorty of radio lab that aired recently called what's up doc um, I recommend you guys checking it out and I know a lot of you are, are, are radio lab fans anyway but uh, it, it concerned Mel blank of course the classic uh, voice actor who uh, you know did the, the voice of bugs bunny and countless others and um,
0: 1500
1: other voices. 1500 yeah. yeah and uh and they end up. They talk to his son in this episode, and he talks about like when he played these characters. It wasn't just like, all right, I'm going to do wacky voice number one and wacky wacky voice number two. I mean, he was there was almost uh, there was a sort of method acting mentality there mm-hmm. where he knew these characters. He would embody them, and even though he's just doing the audio, he would act out. You know, you could you'd see physically his uh, he was different when he was doing one ver- voice versus the other, and uh and so in, in this episode they talk about how. um uh, at one point, he was in this horrible crash, a uh, car uh, crash on Dead Man's Curve in Hollywood Boulevard, and he nearly died. And he was uh, he was out for two weeks in a coma. and He would not
0: respond to anyone. Yeah, not respond
1: to anyone. Yeah. But then how do they get him to respond? That's the crazy part.
0: Well, this is, yeah, this is the crazy part. Um, his neurosurgeon, Dr. Conway, uh, just, he said, out of nowhere, he just decided to call him Bugs Bunny. He called mm-hmm. Ma- Mel Blank, one of his characters, Bugs Bunny, and said... Uh, Something like, hey Bugs, how are you doing today? And then Mel Blank actually responded as Bugs Bunny and went, eh, what's up, Doc? (laughs) And in character, right? He responds out of he comes out of his coma, basically inhabiting this character. Yeah. And he goes through a couple of other voices, um, I think including Porky, Daffy, and Foghorn, Leghorn. Until he himself, Mel Blanc, the person, the self that that we all think of, is sitting there saying, "What's going on? Where am I?" Yeah. So to me, it points to this amazing moment where you do have this question of, like, well, how much of Mel Blanc is the characters, and how much of those characters is are is Mel Blanc? You know? Yeah. Um, to what degree is he himself, or this fictionalized uh, character? That he's inhabited
1: now this leads us into another area as we discussed earlier undercover cops undercover agents vice operatives and uh and you know in the the interview with colt cabana we asked him briefly about uh, uh you know w- what it's like when he's out there and he's portraying a bad guy he has this character the officer colt cabana is uh, like a you know a, a vile uh you know foul-mouthed uh, policeman and uh and then he has to go back you know he has to leave the, the ring go into the, the, the backstage area and he says he's able to, to shut it off like it's not it doesn't bleed over uh, um, into his life after the fact mm-hmm. and of course that brings to mind again these, these vice officers police officers who have to go out and p- pretend to be drug dealers pretend to be um, you know what have you some sort of criminal element uh, in order to infiltrate it and, and you know and, and actually uh, get the actual criminals and, and get them arrested so what happens when they're doing that? What happens when they have to play that part? And then is there is there the chance that the, 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 uh, the, the criminal element they're pretending to be uh, becomes the real them? Do they end up, you know, essentially they're pretending to be this monster and then the monster consumes them? And it does happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a high wire act, right? Yeah. And um, you have a bit about how there have been some instances right where that shadow self has taken over
1: yeah yeah um and this is of course this is important stuff this is stuff that's been that's been studied because ultimately you're talking about law enforcement which is important you're talking about individuals risking their their lives and 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 ultimately their their sanity to to engage in these kind of operations so uh dr um michael girato a professor of psychology at the university of ottawa he conducted a 10-year study of undercover agents and uh he, he looked at uh, 70, seventy-two undercover cops, and out of these seventy-two, um, there were there were six that ended up being disciplined for uh, acting inappropriately during their missions. So one. For one person, it was using cocaine. For another, it was conspiracy to, to sell classified information about ongoing investigations. For one, it was actually selling classified information. For another, it was sexual involvement with a confidential informant. For another, it was excessive use of force. And for another, it was theft of money from an evidence locker. Um, and, I mean, uh, and uh, and you see the varying degrees of of shadiness in these, and you can imagine, like, all right, you know like on the cocaine, you can imagine like a guy who's posing as a drug dealer being put in a position where he, he has to use the drug or someone says, Hey, use you know, not, not, Hey, use that drug, but, but, you know, encouraging them to, to sample it, to prove their worth. You kind of see that as a trope in various undercover cop movies anyway, but then other stuff like stealing money from an evidence locker, like that's more of, I have come back from the role I'm pretending to be. And now I'm actually that in the evidence locker. I'm that at, at, at the base, at the home. Um, where I'm supposed to leave this criminal fake me behind. So his ultimate finding, uh, Dr. Uh, Garrado's finding, was that undercover agents with a disciplined self-image and control of their impulses almost unwaveringly saw themselves as merely playing the part of a drug dealer. So like Colt Cabana uh, or or any number of actors uh, out there, they were able to say all right um no i'm back home now and at home i'm the real me i am this version of me mm-hmm. and that other thing that that uh, the, the drug dealer that i was just pretending to be for like 6 hours that's just a show that's just a fake so ultimately uh, he says that it's an, what you need is an internal set of social standards that prevent you from losing your sense of identity
0: yeah it makes me think back to our episode on willpower and self control mm-hmm. and Uh, I wonder if living a double life creates a heavy cognitive load. We talked about this cognitive load in that if you have to remember, you know, say two or more items as opposed to ten items and then have to take some sort of um, test and self-control afterward, you're going to be less likely to follow through with self-control if you have a high cognitive load so in other words if you're a double agent or you have a double life then you have to keep in mind this entire other story which might erode some of that self-control uh and lead to some of this ego depletion that we've talked about before too that you just have a finite amount of mental energy to dedicate to certain tasks so i can see how the shadow self could kind of take over very easily in that instance um I wanted to mention, too, that psychologist Dr. Alan Solarian has has talked about what it's like to work with secret agents. He says, The most secret agents I have met have two signature traits, fearlessness and a high tolerance for anxiety. Whether because of biological factors such as an elevated level of the mood-enhancing neurochemical serotonin or because of the influences of their early lives, these people seem to be extreme risk-takers who can tolerate and manage worry, tension, and stress with natural ease. So you have to wonder at what point are the stakes so high that the tension um, begins to to erode Mm -hmm. some of that self-control.
1: All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to discuss uh, fiction. We're going to discuss avatars, and when I say avatars, not only are we going to talk a little bit about uh, your online avatar, but also the the older concept of the avatar itself.
0: And not the movie.
1: All right, we're back, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about avatars here, about the online self, because this is a... You know, we've discussed already this idea that, that we, we assume different personas, Mm -hmm. um, to varying conscious degrees whenever we're interacting with the outside world. There, there's a slightly different you when you're talking to your mother, uh, and there's a slightly different you when you're talking to, uh, the grocer. You know, it, it's, there's just all these different masks swirling around the, um, the ephemeral self. And we just put on those different masks to interact with the world.
0: But here is this avatar, this opportunity to build a new you from the ground up. Right. And what they found, though, what some researchers have found, is that it isn't always too far from the real you, the flesh and blood you. Uh, This is very interesting. It's from an article called Is It a Game? Evidence for Social Influence in the Virtual World. It was published in the journal Social Influence And in the study, uh, which was conducted by Paul W. Eastwick and Wendy L. Gardner, one avatar tried to influence another to fulfill a request. Because what we're talking about here is relationships.
1: They were using uh, something called dare.com for this, which is kind of like Second Life. Mm -hmm. Uh, This kind of limitless virtual environment where people create little versions of themselves and then they kind of teleport around and interact with each other.
0: And, you know, a lot of the fun is just sort of outfitting your character, uh, you know, giving it certain physical characteristics so on and so forth but at the end of the day like I said it really is about communication because you're just mirroring what you're already doing in society or at least this is what this paper is saying um, so yeah, you've got these, you've got one avatar trying to influence another to fulfill a request, just like in life, right? I ask something of you, you ask something of me, mm-hmm. we try to cooperate together to get something done. Um, the experimenter, in this case, an avatar, first makes an unreasonably large request to which the responder is expected to say no, followed by a more moderate request.
1: Yeah, I think it was something like go to, get like 20 screenshots from a particular environment in this, mm-hmm. in this, uh, this world so it's like if you were like playing uh, one of these like quest games like Skyrim and you just it was like a ridiculous ridiculously complex mission for some seemingly low payoff
0: so as expected the avatars which is similar to people who participated in the same experiment in the real world were more likely to comply with the moderate request when it was preceded by the large request uh, than when the moderate request was presented alone now that's kind of a that's a tactic that i think a lot of people use like Mm -hmm. if i just go in for the it's sort of like you ask for a raise if i ask for a (laughs) million (laughs) dollars then it's a lot easier to get to the maybe x amount that i want as opposed to if i just ask for a thousand dollar raise um so what you see is that they exhibited a psychological tendency to reciprocate the requester's concession, the change from a relatively unreasonable request to a more moderate request. So uh, one of the other more striking findings was the effect of what they call the DITF technique, which was door in the face. This is the way that they made the request. It was significantly reduced when the requesting avatar was dark-toned. Hmm. Uh, the white avatars in the DITF experiment received about a twenty percent increase in compliance with the moderate request. The increase for the dark-toned avatars was eight percent.
1: Yeah, and again, this is a virtual world, so there's there's no telling on the other side of a virtual character if they are black, if they are white, if they are male or if they are female. I mean, in Second Life, you see people going around as like you know monkeys and cats and dogs and stuff. And, mm-hmm. You know, and there are various other examples of people playing in, you know very inhuman characters. So on some level, we know that the person on the other side can be anything, but we still ended up, end up buying into the, uh, the, the, the the vision that is presented to us.
0: Yeah, we're still tethered to some degree to our, our prejudices and the, the social construction in our mind of what we think the world is. Um, so I thought that was interesting that, that still what it boils down to is that even though you've created this avatar, and uh, it's supposed to represent this duality within yourself, you're still you're still socializing and cooperating or not cooperating in the same sense that you would in your your real life
1: yeah and of course, another thing to keep in mind with all this is that in these video game interactions, you're of course not making eye contact Now, I like to think of a, of a of a, of a future time when uh, our video game characters will have our actual eyes. I think that could be
0: kind I think of that would be really cool,
1: yeah. But for now, they most characters in video games have just the dead, soulless eyes of the Uncanny Valley. Um, but uh, but uh, one of the studies we were looking at, and this was, uh, where was this from?
0: This was from the University of Haifa in Israel.
1: Yeah. So they asked 71 pairs of college students who did not know one another to debate an issue over instant mess- messenger and try to come up with an agreeable solution. And they did a couple of facets of this, but the ultimate finding was that when their eyes were hidden... The participants were twice as likely to be hostile because they had, to, and some of the the uh, the, the, uh, the subjects were uh, were used, they were using like a Skype uh, webcam technology so that they could they could make eye contact during these interactions and others not, and so when their eyes are hidden, hostility is more likely to occur.
0: Which is again, you know, you're you're outside of the social contract, right? Because the way that you know that you're in a social contract is by witnessing the other person's reaction to you, all the mm-hmm. nonverbal gesturing that gives you an indication of how they're feeling. So if yeah. you can't see that, then it makes sense that you would miss those cues or it, that they just wouldn't be present enough to sort of get you to line up with acceptable behavior. So this, of course, is one of the reasons why we see uh, rude behavior running rampant online.
1: Yeah, that's why you see like these just outrageous examples of trolls, you know, where someone's just out there just being completely awful and, uh, you know, they, whenever they're eventually exposed, they're, you know, or not always, they're not eventually exposed, but in the cases where they're exposed, you see, oh, well, this actually seems like a fairly normal person. How are they that awful online? And, you know, it's because they're, they're, on some level, they're not, they don't see themselves as interacting with real people. They're just kind of interacting with automatons.
0: Uh, yeah, so I think it'll be interesting to see if this shadow self, this sense of shadow self becomes more acceptable as we continue to communicate online and that we, this, this duality maybe disappears a bit because again, we, we think of ourselves as this continuity, right? This script director yeah. in our, our brain saying, you are this, you're a good person. You have integrity. You move throughout the day in the following ways, but then we act another way when nobody is looking. So yeah. how much of that will, you know, in the future be acceptable or not acceptable?
1: Yeah. finally, the world of fiction, which we've talked about this before, the, sto- the power of storytelling, the power of fiction. Uh, but uh, there was a little study that we ran across that uh, that ties in nicely with what we're talking about here. And this is from uh, Brigham Young University, a uh, research team led by Sarah M. Coney. And she uh, writes, uh, in, in this instance, for the British Journal of Social Psychology. And uh, she was looking at... Um, how exposure to aggressive behavior in literature has a psychological impact on readers. So in this case, uh, they had the test subjects read two different versions of a story. Like mm-hmm. Some people would read a story where the outcome is that the conflict is solved with violence, and in the other, uh, the conflict is not solved with violence. And in both uh, cases, they found that uh, provoked people... Who were given the opportunity to engage in a specific specific form of retaliatory violence were more likely to do so if they had just read a fictional account of similar activity. So, in other words, the individuals who just read this thing where someone solves a problem with violence, if they then if they then encounter a real life uh, conflict, mm-hmm. they are more likely to be aggressive in that that incident.
0: Which I. I- hadn't stumbled upon that study until we started doing research on this because we've like you said we've done Mm -hmm. we've covered this subject quite a bit in the ability of the reader to take on the persona of the character and also mirror neurons uh you know firing at the same time that a character is throwing a ball in a book right yeah Uh, but to to see this this Concrete manifestation of the abstract of aggression Mm -hmm. is pretty amazing. Yeah. And then I think that it points to this idea that this, again, that self is a very tenuous thing. Yeah. Uh, That this consciousness, this continuity factory that we try to have in our head of, of churning out this idea of who we are isn't quite as solid as we think it is.
1: Yeah, and then, then we had this uh, other study we looked at, uh, researchers from Ohio State University, and they mm-hmm. conducted like uh, six different experiments on about 500 different participants. And they found that stories written in the first person can temporarily transform the way readers view the world themselves and other social groups. So, for instance, they um, they, they were uh, particularly interested at one point in what would happen when individuals were reading about a character and then that character was then revealed to be uh, homosexual. Mm -hmm. In this particular experiment, they had like 70 heterosexual males, and they they read this story, and uh, they found that uh, depending on where in the narrative the the revelation was made, it it had a big impact on how they they felt about the protagonist being gay and and also how they just envisioned that character. Like if, if it was revealed early in the story, then they brought in a lot of, uh, baggage and a lot of uh, preconceptions about uh-huh. what a gay character should be. Uh, but if they revealed it later, then uh, then all of that stuff wasn't necessarily thrown into the mix.
0: Because they had a chance to try to occupy that person's Yeah, to, to walk mindset. in their shoes. Yeah. Right, yeah. Huh. Very cool stuff.
1: Yeah, it really makes you think about the power of first-person narratives. Like, I instantly started thinking about um, Joyce Carol Oates' book, Zombie, uh, which is a first-person uh, perspective uh And the character is based loosely on Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm -hmm. So you have a very dark and troubled individual, and you, and and, and I think that's maybe the thing that's so, you know, narcotic about uh, texts like that is that it it puts you in the mindset of this individual that is seemingly far removed from who you are. Mm -hmm. But then ultimately you have to ask yourself, how far removed if I'm able to embody that person when I read this?
0: You, uh, that was in the book swap, right? For our, uh, yeah. early holiday gathering.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lauren, the, uh, the new, uh, co host on Tech Stuff got that one, so.
0: So right now she is, uh, her yeah. nightmares for, She's her, having nightmares and right, shivering in a corner. Right. Somewhere. Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to start, I'm going to throw some subliminal things out today. <laughs> about Jeffrey Dahmer and just see how she reacts.
1: Wow. So, um, so like I say, said earlier, uh, it, it makes me think about avatars, not only in the, in the, the online avatar sense, but in the, the, the old idea of the avatar. Uh, which you know, is steeped in Hinduism, uh, comes from the Sanskrit uh, word avatara, which means descent. And the idea here is that you have a god, um, and that god is just immaterial and just completely um, separate from the physical world. And then to descend to the physical world, the god has to take on a form uh, that can be understood by the physical world and that can interact with the physical world. Uh, for instance, uh, Vishnu. Has ten different avatars, and they range from there's a fish, there's a tortoise, there's a boar, there's a dwarf, there's a, and then, and then there's Krishna, and then there's Buddha, and then there's a tenth avatar that's, uh, uh, the form of a white horse with wings, and it's a destroyer that'll come at the end of the world. So ten, I, I really like this, this, uh, this metaphor, uh, for ourselves and the various selves we present. You know, think of your, your your ultimate inner thoughts and everything that's going on inside you. You're kind of like this Vishnu, this this formless thing, and then to interact with the uh, physical world, to descend to the physical world, you have to take on these various forms, and they mean different things, and they have different applications in different environments.
0: Right. So that the type of self that we roll out really sort of depends on which avatar we need at the moment. Uh, you know what one of my avatars is? What's that? A duck
1: a duck. Mm-hmm. So Julie takes on the form of the duck. Mm-hmm. And uh, and how do you use that avatar?
0: <clears throat> well, it doesn't really speak, so it's oh, not,
1: yeah. <laughs> I don't know.
0: All right, shall we bring over the robot? Yeah,
1: let's call the robot over here and we'll do a couple of uh, quick listener mails. All right. Well, uh, we've heard a lot of great comments on our episodes on mazes and labyrinths. And uh, we heard from uh, Andrew. Andrew writes in and says, Hi, guys. Love the podcast and especially love the episodes dealing with mazes and labyrinths. I think it is noteworthy that modern psychology has been applied to the construction of malls and shopping spaces that specifically create maze or labyrinth-like environments. Have either of you ever been to Ikea? Uh, of course we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we live in the same city as one, so everyone has to go. It's it's a lot. It's mandatory. Yeah. Um, the place is a labyrinth. No two ways about it. You walk in and you follow a path of consumption uh, and leave next to the entrance. Uh, this uh, psychological tool of peace and religious expansion is being used uh, to proliferate consumer culture. Uh, and then he goes on to say, you know, it's it's com- rather different inside of a mall environment where it's just, it's like a maze. There are all these, like, how do I get out of here? How do I get to the store I want to go to? How do I uh, escape the horrors of the food court? All these questions come up. Whereas, indeed, IKEA is so well laid out and so versed in design mm-hmm. that there's a path you you flow. It's, it's, at least for the first hour, it's a calming experience. <laughs> um, and uh, in the the book that we uh, we discuss in 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 maps and labyrinths, uh, also makes that point uh, in regard to um, uh, to hospitals and, mm-hmm. and similar environments. One of the problems there, of course, is that you end up with a maze like hospital because in many cases you you build part of a hospital and then you build another wing onto it, and there's another wing here, so you have all these layers coming together to form this this. This thing where there's no cohesive design in place,
0: which heightens your anxiety, particularly if you're at the hospital to visit someone or you yourself are checking in. So, not necessarily the sort of design that you want. This the book is called Healing Spaces. Yes, right? Healing Spaces. Um, yeah, and, and and we were talking about uh, government buildings just yesterday, and how it has like this, you know, Kafkaesque bureaucratic layering of of, of maze like. Uh, ways to get to where you need to go and almost seems intentional like oh we're gonna make you go down this mile long hallway and then we're gonna give you directions that are you know 20 different directions on top of that um so yeah
1: all right, we'll hear, hear a couple more. This one is from Jill. Jill writes in and says, Hello, thanks for the fantastic podcast. Labyrinths have become close to my heart over the past few years after my husband and I eloped to San Francisco. We had a marriage blessing at Grace Cathedral where I saw my first labyrinth. Uh, he walked it, and it was beautiful to see every step really count. I was uh, not comfortable uh, to have a prayerful or meditative practice in the open, but I did find this box and book uh, picture below, and she included some some excellent uh, photographs uh, there, of labyrinths at Christmas this year for my own practice. The tracing and breath are a good connection for me. I completely agree with what you said about the mazes. They are frustrating, and I don't know why they were included in this pack. She's referring to the, the... Pack of mazes, Lambert, she had. Meditative maze did prove to be an oxymoron. Yeah, because, like we discovered, there's nothing meditative about being lost in yeah. a maze. Thanks again for all you do. Uh, it is appreciated down here in Orlando. And then we also heard from Kelly. Kelly wrote and said, Hello, I just finished listening to the Labyrinth episode and wanted to thank you for all the interesting facts. I am actually getting married in a labyrinth this August. My husband and I were legally married last March, but postponed our larger ceremony and reception as I was nine months pregnant and couldn't see my feet. Now that our beautiful baby boy is here, we are renewing our vows and having an actual ceremony and reception. Our ceremony is being held here in the center of a labyrinth, which is set in the woods here in Illinois, where we live. We like the idea of the ceremony being a meditative experience. I plan to have a sign near the entrance offering a brief explanation and history of labyrinths and inviting people to sneak away from the reception to try it for themselves. I will definitely use some of the facts you covered in the show. Thanks again for a great episode. And if you read this on the show, I just want to say thanks to my husband, Chad, and my sons, Caden and Silas, for being uh, the three most wonderful guys on the planet. Kelly. Aww. Yeah, that's Sweet.
0: I think mean, it's very cool to have a ceremony in a labyrinth.
1: It is, yeah. And, uh, yeah, interesting to see, to, to hear uh, from two different uh, listeners who uh, mm-hmm. have employed uh, labyrinths in their uh, their ceremony. All right. Well, if you have something you would like to share with us, uh, be it about mazes and labyrinths or be it about the shadow self, Um Actors, I know we have some actors out there. Uh, wha- how, let us know how that works in your mind. What's it like to take on a character? Uh, and, you know, do you use uh, the method to, uh, to any degree? Um, if we have anyone who has done any kind of undercover work, uh, be it like official, you know, hard and gritty uh, undercover work or something a little more mundane, uh, you know, some sort of like even public uh, performance uh, kind of thing where you're having to put on a character uh, to deceive people, uh, don't us, tell us. Don't tell us. <laughs> but, no, but, but, no, but seriously, if you've engaged in anything uh, like that, we'd love to hear some more uh, you know, insight on how that feels and how you feel yourself embodied in the character that you're being or how you feel that character uh, affecting you. So we'd love to hear from you about any of that. Uh, you can find us on Tumblr and you can find us on Facebook. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those.
0: And you can also drop us a line at, at com.